I'm Stephen Metcalf, and this is the Slate Culture Gap Fest Democracy Shaken Not Stirred edition. It's Wednesday, November 4th, 2020. On today's show, What the Constitution Means to Me was a Broadway, is a Broadway play. It was filmed. It's now streaming on Amazon. It is a mostly one-woman show written and performed by Heidi Schreck about the relationship of our cherished document to the lived experiences of abortion, violence, sexual violence, and misogyny. And then... Yes, the Untouchables. Yes, Marnie. Yes, The Wind and the Lion. Okay, The Man Who Would Be King. Great movie, but Sean Connery is the original and forever the only James Bond. He died this past week. We're going to remember him in part by uh, having rewatched the movie Goldfinger. He loves only God. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then finally, Song Exploder. It was a podcast about the exquisitely occult processes by which songs are born, are turned into something from nothing. Now it's a pretty super cool Netflix show. We will discuss that too with Isaac Butler. Isaac, I'm looking at your list here. You're a quintuple threat or something. You're a writer, you're a director, a teacher, a union member. You're I do too many things. No, 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 not at all. Co-host of Slate's working podcast and your forthcoming book, which we are going to discuss without fail, is about Stanislavski and it's called The Method. It's out in sometime in 2021, I take it? Yeah, late to 2021, maybe early 2022, depending on, you know, what the editing process is like. Brilliant. And of course, Dana Stevens is the film critic for Slate.com. Hey, Dana. Hey, how are you doing, Steve? Uh, I think we're all going to be just a wee bit punchy today. Because we're taping on election day, we should say. Yes, I was going to say that through the magic of not time travel, the people listening to us know all kinds of things that we don't know. Um, One of which may not be who the president is, but we're, we're recording this in a state of near total ignorance. It's whatever, 10 something in the morning on Tuesday on election day. So we're in a state of like weird suspended animation and speaking for only myself. I'm in the weirdest mood, so buckle up right yeah yep definitely feeling a little bit strange today anything yeah. could happen including those those shirley bassey bombings that we experienced in the intro yeah oh my god <laughs> i mean it's only civilization on the ballot am i right okay yeah. shall we do this let's do it if i could a quick note before we get going just that my taping system cut out at some point during our sean connery conversation so you're going to hear one answer that i give to steve in that conversation that sounds a little janky sound-wise, but then I will get back to my normal, hopefully smooth recording. And as always, please forgive us these COVID-era audio glitches. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval, terms apply. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. As a teenager, Heidi Schreck would give speeches about the U.S. Constitution to American Legion halls. She did it for money. It's what helped her work her way through college, as she tells us uh, in her wonderful play, What the Constitution Means to Me. The play begins with her inhabiting her somewhat ingratiating 15-year-old self who's trying to win over audiences filled overwhelmingly with white men. And she says she remembers them all smoking cigars, though they may well not have been. But as the play unfolds, a vastly more complex, angry, nuanced, Uh, intense monologue begins to bleed to the surface. It's a story about a family, her family, as it's riven over decades by a history of sexual and racial violence, Um, and also about how legal rights fail to stop the ongoing rituals of abuse. And yet, miraculously, over the course of the play, I would argue, she takes this lived experience and finds ways to put it back into the Constitution in hopes of making it the living document the founders wanted it to be. Uh, Of course, this play could not be more relevant with the death of uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the elevation of her comically inapt 
replacement, whatever her name is, to her seat, where she may in fact decide all by her lonesome, it's not inconceivable who gets to be the next president of the United States. So with all that said, let's listen to a clip. My friend Renee and I snuck in the back door of Planned Parenthood before my mom's friend worked there. Neither of us was having sex yet, but we just, you know, we wanted to be on birth control just in case, just in case we were in a hot tub and then the sperm swam up and attacked us. <laughs> Or, you know, in case of a real attack. I remember it was such a nice day. We, uh, we went to McDonald's and we took our first pills with chocolate shakes and I could kind of feel it working right away, you know? <laughs> like, I felt very womanly, like something kind of came alive inside of me. <laughs> what I didn't know at the time is that birth control had only been legal for all women in this country for 15 years. I mean, I was 15, so I thought it had been legal since like the dawn of time. But no, no, in 1965, this incredible woman, Estelle Griswold, got herself arrested for giving out birth control to poor women at her Connecticut Planned Parenthood. She faced a year in prison, took her case all the way to the Supreme Court, and this, this is when William O. Douglas brought out his beautiful penumbra metaphor. This is when he said, one thing our Constitution surely guarantees is the right to privacy and that this allows a woman to put in an IUD as long as she is married and as long as her husband says that it is okay. <laughs> Isaac, let me start with you. This is, a, this is kind of a remarkable play. It's a, it's, it manages to be about the law, about the law's relationship to moral intuition, rights and uh, our rights and their relationship to power. It gets into an extremely sophisticated, to my mind, discussion about the difference between positive and negative rights and how foundational that is to the country. A hobby horse of mine, I was beyond moved and delighted to see that reflected in a, in a, uh, in a um, you know, streaming TV show, film play, but it's a play. Yeah, it's fundamentally a play. So begin maybe by talking about it as such. Uh, yeah. So what the Constitution means to me, it is a play. I actually think one of its great magic tricks is that it is incredibly carefully written and structured, but feels almost as if it's unfolding extemporaneously. Mm -hmm. uh, Heidi, mm -hmm. um, I'm going to use her first name because she is a friend. I should say in, in, in full disclosure, you know, the, the writer, performer, the director of the stage version and the director of the film are all people I'm friendly with. Um, Heidi worked on it for, you know, a decade decade but it doesn't feel overworked it, um and she even has a moment in the play where she says in spite of how it feels and apparently what some people think this play is so carefully constructed <laughs> it's not my fault if you can't see the structures and one of the, the fascinating things, although this was cut short by the pandemic, is um, when the show toured, a different actor played Heidi. The wonderful actor Maria Dezia um, played Heidi on tour, So, which is sort of the moment when it really begins to exist as a play, right? Once it's a text that other people can do, um, then, it's, then it's really in, in that kind of genre. But I also think of it as just a work of nonfiction, maybe because I'm a nonfiction writer. And I have to say, I think... I think it's one of the most brilliant memoirs in any form, um, in any media. Uh, it, it, it's incredible what she manages to do and weave together um, through legal analysis, historical storytelling, research, and her own life. It, it, it's truly remarkable to me. I also cried like 11 times watching it. Yeah. I mean, I to me, what I, I mean, I, I quite loved everything about this. and But, but just personally, I think <clears throat> what I found most impressive about it, if not what was most moving about it, but most impressive was, you know, how does individual human experience upload itself to a set of highly abstracted rights and vice versa so that you live in something that resembles a just society and we're a, presumably an aggregation of 330 million highly individuated personalities. And I think sometimes people feel as though there's a gulf between their day-to-day -day lived experience and their own, you know, highly personalized aspirations and super algebraic 
notions of rights that apply universally and to absolutely everybody. And to bring those two things together, like her document, her play is the ultimate living document, even though it contains very long, and I say this admiringly, didactic passages about what rights are, who made the Constitution and why, whether it's a living or a, or a static document. I mean, you know, really esoteric debates about, about how you read the Constitution in order to make law in the United States, but through this super deeply felt and nuanced appreciation for not only her own history, but her family's history, right? Like how over how trauma, the trauma of abuse plays out over many generations. And in in and so for her, this is both, you know, an abuse memoir and a kind of college lecture. And it the two inform one another in ways that I found just surprising on a minute-by-minute basis and quite beautiful. Yeah, totally. I mean, I was, you know, I tweeted about this, but you know, when when Heidi, there's a part where Heidi recites the first clause of the 14th Amendment, mm-hmm. which you wouldn't yeah. normally think is something that would make you cry. And I like just started crying, you know, like, because there is something so beautiful and deeply felt about the inquiry into our nation and what it is and what the Constitution is and how it is both the, as the Simpsons would say, the the cause of and solution to all of our problems. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, um, and that stuff is as deeply felt as the personal narrative. And, um, you know, as much as the title is kind of a joke, right? Because that's what yeah. a 15 yes. year old would title an essay about the constitution. Uh, uh, you know, the gambit is that she actually makes that title work. And, and it's, it's just incredibly impressive. I thought, uh, Dana, you know, Isaac was getting at something, which is the cause of, and the, um, what was the phrasing, the Simpsons phrasing to alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. <laughs> so as the cause of and solution to all of our problems, the Constitution, uh, you know, she's exploring that dual nature of the Constitution throughout the whole show. But at the end, there's this quite sustained set piece where Heidi debates a a local kid, right, who's been incorporated into the show. Um, and they conduct a a debate over whether to abolish or keep the Constitution, which would be more conducive to the social change this country desperately needs. And it's like actually like one of those hyper-competitive, super-verbal, like razzle-dazzling high school debates that I never participated in. Um, And uh, it's amazing to watch. What would you make of that part of the show? I'm curious. I had a lot of... uh, of questions about how that part of the show was yes. put together and to what degree it was improvised, yes, right? Because it it appears as if this young, I mean, almost middle school age, really young, maybe 14-year-old girl comes out on stage and debates, you know, does a parliamentary style debate, as you say, about whether to keep the Constitution or to abolish it and start over from scratch. And meanwhile, there's a moderator, we haven't talked about him, but there's a figure who's on stage the whole time who at first plays a debate moderator and then kind of becomes a character himself. You know, he's there moderating their debate. And it all feels spontaneous to me, but I feel like it has to be scripted. Isaac, do you know to what extent that would differ night to night when they were doing this live? I don't know exactly how scripted it was versus improvised. I do know that, you know, they they switch position, you know, whether to abolish or to um, keep the Constitution, um, you know, often. And there are actually two different people who play the debater, who are real high school debaters. Um uh, so, you know, there's lots of variation in there at the same time. Like if you're doing a show like a couple hundred times, the arguments are necessarily going to coalesce and become less spontaneous over time, mm-hmm. even if the actual beats of how that section play out uh, are spontaneous or extemporaneous. Um, you know, there's only so much content that you can go through in there. You know, like I saw what the constitution means to me at New York theater workshop, which is where it was before it was on Broadway. And it opened like right around the Kavanaugh hearings. I saw it the week before. Um, and they were taking the opposite position. So Heidi was abolish the constitution. The debater was keep the constitution. And I remember the talking points being fairly similar. Uh, that's not to say that word for word, they were the same. It's just, there's only so many talking points, you know? Mm-hmm. So the last time y'all had me on GabFest was to talk about Hamilton and the the filmed version of Hamilton that we all watch. And of course, Spike Lee did a film of David Byrne's American Utopia. And this was directed by, you know, the great Marielle Heller. 
who did Can You Ever Forgive Me and Won't You Be My Neighbor. Um, are you enjoying watching these A-list directors take on great Broadway shows or, or what? I mean, it's something I'm really glad is happening. I haven't seen all of them. I haven't seen the, the Spike Lee-David Byrne collaboration yet. Uh, the Hamilton we all talked about together. That was, of course, a different experience for me because I'd already seen it on stage. So it's a question of, you know, translating one experience into another. But, of course, in this case, this is my one experience of what the Constitution means to me. I mean, I guess I would say, for one thing, that it lends itself better to this treatment than a more complicated musical show with a lot of moving parts and dance, et cetera, right? I mean, there's really just one thing to look at on the stage most of the time. It's a pretty normal kind of proscenium setup with with one main figure speaking the whole time. But at the same time, there's something that's really lost with the audience interaction. There's a lot of shots in, in Meryl Heller's version of this of the audience responding. There's, you know, moments when the audience comes up and plays a part, judges the debate, for example. Um, and of course, you miss that spontaneity and that that anything can happen feeling that you get in a live show. But I just feel a lot of, of gratitude. I mean, I really hope this sort of the same way that I hope that after the pandemic is over, knock wood, that is soon, that some of some things like online yoga classes being easily accessible mm-hmm. will continue into the future. I hope that there'll be more recorded Broadway. I mean, I realize that, you know, in order to get people into theaters, that will probably have to come at a lag time of the show itself. They're not just going to start throwing the show out on the airwaves while it's on the stage or what would be your motivation to go see it. But the idea that it would be more accessible to people who either can't afford or are just not geographically located in a way to get to Broadway shows seems exciting. And I know when this was on Broadway, I was interested to see it. And it was one of those things that went by, you know, went by too fast. I missed it. I think it closed before the pandemic correct Isaac uh, I believe it did yeah and uh, and so that was a missed opportunity that we now get to reclaim so I, all I can say is I'm all for it uh, yeah me too I just I, every time there was a shot of the audience I kept thinking oh my god they're seated so close to each other they're they're breathing on one another I mean I you know you can't help yearning for the moment when you can be in a crowd in an audience again but I'm, so, I'm just so conditioned by the anxieties of the pandemic that it's amazing to me that we once all sat in enclosed spaces next to each other. Um, but uh, no, it's mar- I thought it was marvelous. You know, I mean, a- especially for a show like this, Steve, that's really a journey with the character. I mean, you really have to, you know, peel away a lot of layers and accept a lot of radical shifts. And I can imagine that being in that room, I mean, it was very mm-hmm. moving to watch it even yeah. filmed, but I can imagine that being in that room could be quite harrowing because you think that you have a certain relationship to this character and to this document that she's talking about. And then there'll just be a, a sudden turn where something is exposed that's that's much uglier than you would have imagined. And, you know, you see people in the audience crying yeah. uh, in the in the cutaway shots. Yeah. And I, I imagine that w- that would have been me too. Right. One thing that I remembered from seeing it live that I think the movie actually makes very clear is how important the pauses are to its structure. Mm. That there's a bunch of moments where Heidi is on the verge of saying something that's almost unsayable. And it just like the show just stops for a second. Uh, I also, I do have... um... I have a personal connection to the Equal Protection Clause. I just, I never would have spoken about it at 15. I, uh, I didn't tell anyone. And whenever I get to this part, I, I just, I have this desire to protect my 15-year-old self from speaking about it. That is actually often when uh, the film cuts to the audience, which I thought was really interesting because you can experience their experience of that tension in those moments in a way that I thought was was a, a very clever uh, solution to the problem that you can't quite experience the same tension yourself. Mm. All right. Well, it's what the Constitution means to me. It's on Amazon. Uh, we all agree you should absolutely check this thing out. Okay, moving on. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right. Well, before we go any further, this is typically where we talk business. Dana, what do you have? 
Stephen, in business today, I just want to tell you that our Slate Plus segment will be tapping into the expertise of our lovely guest host, Isaac Butler. He's going to talk to us about the state of the theater industry in this time of pandemic and try to make some predictions as to how and when we might be able to go see plays and musicals again in person and not just watch them on Prime Video as we did with the Constitution play this week. So stay tuned for that segment if you're a member of Slate Plus. And if you are a Slate Plus member and there's anything you'd like us to discuss in one of these future segments, please let us know. You can email us at culturefest at slate.com. And we're happy to have your suggestions in a slush pile. We may take them all at some point. If you're not a Slate Plus member and you would like to be, you can sign up today and get a free two-week trial when you go to slate.com slash cultureplus. There you will get ad-free podcasts, exclusive plus-only content like our extra segments, and many other benefits. Again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. We really appreciate your support. Gold finger. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, that's my cue, I guess. Sean Connery has died. He was uh, 90. Um, this after a long and legendary career. I mean, just to put it mildly, he was a working class kid uh, from uh, Edinburgh. He was tall, handsome. He was infamously deft and light on his feet. He worked a series of manual jobs. After a stint in the Royal Navy, he was a sort of up from his own bootstraps kind of guy. He did some nude modeling and then a series of nothing roles in nothing movies. He wasn't really going anywhere as an actor. And then maybe one of the most, if not the most inspired piece of casting in movie history, the producers of the franchise to be from the Ian Fleming novels about a British spy. Over the objections, curiously, of the author who wanted a more posh actor like David Niven to play him, cast Sean Connery as James Bond. Obviously a cornerstone in his life uh, and the life, I would argue, also of commercial movie making. For this segment, we all watched Goldfinger, but as I said, uh, up top, he had a remarkable career well beyond James Bond. It would, I think, chagrin him deeply to think uh, he was being spoken of only as Bond. So we will move far beyond that. But why don't we start by listening to a clip from the third in the Bond series, Goldfinger. I thought I'd wake up dead. Tranquilize again. Knock out, sir. I see. Well, I'm delighted to be here. And... Uh, by the way, where is here? 35,000 feet, flying southwest over Newfoundland. Oh, that explains the humming. The humming means you're in Mr. Goldfinger's Lockheed Jet Star heading for Baltimore. And you're his guest. I'm honored. I never realized he enjoyed my company that much. I don't suppose it'll be all fun and games. Miley. Can I do something for you, Mr. Bond? Uh, just a drink. A martini, shaken, not stirred. Well, won't you join me? Not on duty. I'm Mr. Goldfinger's personal pilot. You are? And uh, just how personal is that? I'm a damn good pilot. Period. Well, that's good news. Uh, by the way, where is our host? He flew on ahead. Thank you. Ah, yes, to Operation Grand Slam. This should be a memorable flight. You can turn off the charm. I'm immune. (laughs) That, of course, is Honor Blackman, the actress Honor Blackman, as uh, Pussy Galore. Dana, are you immune to the charms? (laughs) I mean, this is such a strange ask to watch this movie right after watching what the constitution means to me, which we haven't given away that many of its reveals, but we have sort of hinted at the fact that it is, it is, you know, a a historical exploration and condemnation of misogyny as being tied up in the American project, et cetera. Uh, Also it's delicate because, you know, Sean Connery has just left this world and, you know, is someone worthy of talking about in, in so many ways. And as you say, reducing him to just James Bond, much less just this movie is, is not fair. But all of that said, I found this so incredibly hard to watch this movie. Yeah. It's so yeah. dated in, in ways that are, are so flagrant right now. And that, I mean, I went into it last night, the night before the election, right? Very tense time for all of us thinking, oh, this is perfect. Some 60s escapism, you know, some stylish outfits and cool gadgets and, I'm just going to really get into the spirit of this James Bond movie. And 
I found it kind of repulsive and had to keep on turning it off and taking breaks from it. For one thing, it's freaking long. It's two and a half hours long, right? So there really are a lot of gadgets, a lot of set pieces, a lot of, um, you know, we can get into them, but, you know, a lot of Bond girls being gone through and then disposed of in various glamorous ways. Yeah. And... I don't know. Talk me out of this, guys. I oh just, my God, I, there's, I felt no, like there's I was, no talking no, you out I, of it. I will not try to talk you out of that. I mean, 1964 is also the year of the Civil Rights Act, whose Title VII forbade sex discrimination in hiring, right? I mean, you know, that's right when this movie is coming out. And it is a movie starring an avowed champion of spousal abuse. I mean, he gave interviews where he talked about how great it is to beat your wife. Uh, as this sort of misogynist superstar agent who everyone, you know, is like, oh, that James. Uh, And the plot turns on him raping a woman until she turns into a good guy. And until she, in terms of the way she's coded, also changes from being kind of queer to heterosexual. And so, you know, like that, I, I had forgotten that that was actually... You know, because I'd seen Goldfinger maybe 20 years ago. I'm not a huge bomb person, but I had forgotten that the movie hinges on that. Yeah. And I was like, I had to like stop it and yeah. like walk around my apartment and come back to it. I was and, so yep. horrified. Yes. So I should say that in the original Goldfinger novel by Ian Fleming, she is gay. Pussy Galore is is openly gay, as I recall. There's no coding at all. And Isaac, I'm completely with you. I had forgotten that that if you were to list in order of importance the thing that things that 007 does in the course of this movie to prevent you know world destruction or the you know whatever the you know heist the gold heist or whatever or Oric Goldfinger getting his evil genius way, number one is is sedu- quote unquote seducing. I'll use that term extremely loosely. Is seducing um, pussy galore. It's such a funny. Thing. I'd never noticed that. I saw this movie multiple times when I was a teenager. I used to love the Bond movies. All right, let me make it... I, I can make no defense of this movie. It is a misogynistic document and is all but unwatchable um, because of it. And I would never, ever, ever try to uh, rehabilitate it. But I, you know, this is a segment about Connery. I, Isaac, I didn't know that, that awful fact about Sean Connery, that he had said that about spousal abuse. That's inexcusable. I will say here are two things that I... Uh, really do admire about Connery is first like Bogart, he didn't take being a film actor and certainly not being a film star seriously, which is I think why they were both so incredibly good at it. There's something about a person who's like, this real, let's be honest, this is really bullshit, who then knows how to do it in a incredibly natural and relaxed way or unselfconscious way. I will say he also got a huge upfront fee to play Bond again in Diamonds Are Forever. He apparently immediately donated the entire thing to charity. Um, And then there's one other thing I'd like to say, which is Truffaut had an interesting reaction to the Bond movies, which I have to say I don't disagree with. He said they marked the beginning of the period of decadence in the cinema. For the first time, mass audiences were exposed to a type of cinema that relates neither to life nor to any romantic tradition, but only to other films and always by sending them up. I mean, these movies do exist as self-parodies in a way. And Truffaut, I think, is exactly right. That the extent you're going to go with them, that's what you're going to go with. I mean, if it's the extent you're, you're in on this kind of joke, and I will say some of the humor is, it's very, it's very ice cold. You know, he makes the, the famous thing or the jokes and double entendres he makes after killing someone, right? And you're meant to enter into this state of, really suspended is like however much you suspend your disbelief to watch an ordinary movie raise it up another like 5,000 feet right like and it's in that kind of weird arch surreal space that these movies unfold and whether that's socially baleful because what you're laughing at are is murder and rape I mean you know I mean it's I cannot defend it but it is an aesthetic and they and they perfected it yeah I mean you know I'm usually on the side of um taking the artist and the art and the politics and all that stuff and and not necessarily always mixing them all up. You know what I mean? Like I, I sort of have betrayed my own way that I normally like to watch movies. It was just impossible for me to have any other reaction. I will say about Connery, you compared him to Bogart. What I was thinking while I was watching it, I was like, oh, he's Clark Gable. Do you know what mm-hmm. I mean? He's like, well, he's mm-hmm. except Scottish. Um, and maybe that's because of how similarly they're built. But there's this, you know, the uh, Hollywood star system falls apart 
in the 50s, right? But there are a few actors who manage to find greatness through that old-fashioned star persona Mm -hmm. style of acting. Uh, And Connery is absolutely at the top of that list. I don't think he made very many good movies, I'll be completely honest. Yeah. But I'm struggling to think of a movie I thought he was anything other than really good in. Yeah. Um, And I've seen a lot of his films, you know? Like, um, uh, and... Actually, it's this weird legacy to evaluate because most of his best work and his best films are schlock, you know, mm. um, but he was he was incredibly good at them because of that sort of insouciant refusal to take the whole thing seriously um, uh, and because of his refusal to speak in anything other than a Scottish accent. I know. Yeah, that's hilarious. Data, I mean, this is a segment about Connery. Can you talk a little bit about him as an actor beyond the Bond franchise? I mean, the title that popped to mind when when Isaac was just saying maybe everything he appeared in or most things were schlock uh, was what I think is a counterexample, although it has its schlocky elements, but just so beautifully orchestrated, which is The Man Who Would Be King from 1975, the John Huston film, which I think we just as well could have picked. And I sort of wish in retrospect, because it would be less queasy making that we had picked it. I mean, of course, it is also a a portrait of British imperialism, but I would argue is a pretty strong critique of it and and pretty much shows, you know, the, the kind of bleak uh, end game of, um, of British imperialism. And it also stars, um, along with Sean Connery, an actor who's the perfect exemplar of that sort of not taking it seriously and yet enjoying himself kind of ethic, which is Michael Caine. So having Michael Caine and Sean Connery together, Christopher Plummer's also there, you know, in this in this utterly, I mean, almost Lawrence of Arabia style um, epic it's, it's just, it's a glorious success. And that movie, to me, much more holds up in, in the rewatching. Um, that's not an overview of Sean Connery's career, but it's a place to send no, that's, people that's to see great. him at his best in a movie that, that is still loads of fun. But in terms of the trajectory of Sean Connery's career, I mean, I think one thing that I could say is that he is somebody who passed through discrete phases, right? As you said, he started off as this sort of, you know, before Bond, he was just this kind of fuck boy that no one knew what to do with, right? This this very handsome and sort of distinctively <laughs> so- Scottish Sounds accented. like they did know what to do with him, Dana. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but that's, that's the case, I think, for a lot of sort of young hunks, you know, who take a while to find their place. And I, th- I feel like it was in his middle-aged era, a little bit post yeah. this Goldfinger era, that that the Connery that we love to imagine um, emerged, you know, somebody who could straight facedly do Zardoz, one of the most ridiculous, <laughs> absurd mainstream sci-fi fantasies that's ever been filmed and do it in his strange way with dignity, you know, so that all of these much memefied pictures of him in that Zardoz role and his strange sort of almost Borat undies style <laughs> costume have a weird dignity to them. Um, because we because we chose Goldfinger, we sort of started off this, you know, tribute session to Sean Connery by saying all these very negative things about one of his most famous movies. So in the spirit of my having mentioned The Man Who Would Be King, maybe we could, could go around and throw out a few more titles of Sean Connery classics that are worth revisiting. Uh, yeah, sure. I'll I'll go. I mean, I think we all know like Hunt for Red October and all of those. But, you know, there's there's an interesting sort of... <laughs> vestigial offshoot of of his career which are the films that he made with the um great director Sidney Lumet which I also think is kind of like a fascinating collaboration because Sidney Lumet is a founding member of the actor's studio who like came up through live tv drama and theater and you know but but he um gets great work out of Connery and they do some three really interesting films together The Hill uh, the Anderson tapes and the offense. Uh, they also do murder on the Orient Express, which I'm not actually the hugest fan of, but um, those four films taken together are this fascinating, like parallel track of Sean Connery's uh, career. And if you like your thrillers in the paranoid seventies uh, uh, vein, if that's the kind of thriller you like, then uh, definitely check out the Anderson tapes. I mean, I, I throw out a, you know, Man Who Would Be King, definitely. But if I had to throw out another one, I would say The Name of the Rose was a very, very successful adaptation of the um, great Umberta Eco, kind of weird Nabokovian pulpy bestseller with Connery as the you know Franciscan friar, William of Baskerville. It's 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 a pretty great. And Christian Slater as a hot young monk. Yeah, yeah. What's not to love? Okay, Sean Connery has died at the age of 90 after a remarkable career. Uh, Don't watch Goldfinger. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so he don't watch loves only gold. <laughs> don't watch Goldfinger and email Wait, actually us about watch it. the credit sequence. Just watch the yes. pre-credit sequence and this and the credit sequence to Goldfinger and and you're all good. Shirley Bassey gives you everything you need. I think that movie up until you get the gold painted corpse is a remarkable genre movie. And I, agree I th- with that. and I think that the gold painted corpse is horrifying and is meant to be horrifying. And I mean it's an when you think about it, I mean, it's just an appalling way to kill another human being. And it makes a statement about this person as an object and what right. Goldfinger as a villain is like and how he objectifies the world around him. And it's talk about it, it is the Trumpiest way for a Trumpy supervillain to kill a woman. And if the movie just didn't then give in to its own fucking right. misogyny, I think that lead up is incredible. Like literally right. to the moment that you see Absolutely. that. And, and you know what I actually found really fascinating about the movie that, again, I wish they had had done more with is that Bond is very bad at his job yeah. and his yes. supervisors are really uh, pissed at uh, him uh, for most of the movie because they're like, if you hadn't blown your cover to get laid and taunt the guy you were supposed to be <laughs> eavesdropping on, um, we would be able to get him. But then because it, it's actually because Bond does that whole switcheroo with the cards and has his noticeable Scottish accent that Goldfinger has made him. And as a result, he gets like everything flows from his decision to just like be a horny moron <laughs> rather than doing his job the way they've asked him to. All right, now we've done it justice. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Song Exploder was a hit podcast. It's about the mysterious alchemy by which a song comes into being. It goes from being a phantom wisp, maybe a tiny flash of melody, a ghostly chord progression, maybe some dummy lyrics, just really a set of intuitions to something finished and complete and moving, presumably to thousands, if not millions of people. The host of the podcast, Rushikesh Hirway, has taken the podcast, turned it into a TV show. I really like the TV show, I got to say, and interviews creators like Alicia Keys, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda, the band members of REM, um, in order to make a vivid procedural drama out of what it's like to create something really from nothing. Let's listen to a clip. I do remember singing and where where I was, and I remember that I took my shirt off and I was really frustrated with the engineer, who I loved dearly, but he wasn't moving fast enough for me. I remember the night like it was yesterday, and I finished it and I stormed out. <laughs> like, I had a little, you know, operatic hissy fit. Can I play your vocal? Solo? God, is there reverb on it? Oh, life oh. is bigger. It's bigger than you, and you are not me. The links that I will go to, the distance in your eyes. That's yeah. hard. It's still hard to hear. It's hard well, to listen why, to. why is that? Uh, It's just so naked, you know, it's so raw. It's so um, unsupported. That's hard. Dana, I know how much a naked, unsupported, raw Michael Stipe means to you. <laughs> you're being sarcastic, but you're, you're actually not wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm both being sarcastic and completely right, which is why this bit is funny. But... Um, <laughs> I know you're a huge REM fan. You love Michael Stipe and all of his uh, excesses. So uh, talk to me about watching that Yeah, episode. we've talked about this before on the podcast. Remember my poem? I once. I, I mean, I can't believe I was ever this vulnerable. So young and vulnerable that I, show, I shared my poem about Michael Stipe that I wrote in my 20s, probably well before this song came out, like in, in the late 80s or so. Um, I think what I most appreciated about that REM segment, um, which was one of my favorite ones, all four, I think I, I would highly recommend and I could get into my reservations later. But what I love so much about the REM one is that, you know, Michael Stipe is just this famously inscrutable uh, figure, right? He, I mean, for most of the band's career, wrote incomprehensible songs that were essentially streams of nonsense words, which are some of my favorite REM songs. And when his songs did start to be 
you know, at least understandable and singable along with uh, in, in a slightly later period of their career, they still maintained that that enigmatic quality. And uh, and he really gets into that in unpacking this song, which it would be easy to think is a song about, well, about religion, for one thing, and about politics and about sort of larger philosophical questions. Um, but that for him was a very intimate, personal song. And he just opens up way more than I would have expected someone as cagey as Michael Stipe to do. But to, to step back a little bit and talk about the methodology of this show, I think part of what I appreciate, both in the podcast, Song Exploder, and on the show as well, maybe even more so on the podcast, is that Rishikesh Herway is such a self-effacing interviewer, and there isn't any sense at all that he is trying to um, insert himself and, you know, ask leading questions or make himself look good or... He's just he's he has a very gentle one critic compared it to therapy. You know, he has an almost therapeutic way of bringing out these questions from these artists about how they conceive their songs. And uh, in the case of Alicia Keys, for example, who we sort of see in the process of writing the song, unlike the other episodes, it almost takes place or at least flashes back on this real time period where you see her working it out in the studio with her writing partners Um he he is really able to get at that that inchoate thing in a song, you know, the way that I'm sure anyone who writes a song, not that I've ever been able to do anything as incredible as write a song with music and lyrics, um, that if you had any other way of saying it, of expressing that emotion, you wouldn't write the song, right? I mean, by definition, it's sort of hard to, to place into words in an interview what it is that made you arrive at this certain musical revelation. And I just feel like there's a lot of discretion in his style as an interviewer that that allows for that, you know, and that isn't isn't overly attempting to interpret or pin down or force them to analyze their songs. That's allowing them to just revisit the moment when they had those feelings that had to be thus expressed. Yeah. And what I love about it too, is that Isaac, it's not just a lot of mushy abstractions that rise, rise to the surface, right? It's both alchemy and a craft and you have to bring the, the magic and the sweat together. And, um, and I, I feel like they get at the, highly specific set of tasks that confront a person trying to make a song work. And, and, um, and Dana's right. Like he doesn't murder to dissect. I mean, weirdly this, that in dissecting these songs, what, what the, the life force of them isn't, isn't drained out of them at all. What, uh, what do you think of the show? Yeah. I mean, in the podcast, you barely hear his voice at all. Right. Uh, Rushikesh Hirway's voice. You know, yeah, he's, he cuts he's, out his questions, which I really cuts out appreciate. His questions. So to me, one of the great revelations of the show is what a fucking great interviewer he is, even though you don't hear that many of them. Like the questions he picks, like I, I have a job now for Slate where I have to ask people about their creative process and how they made things. Right. And the way he does it is like um, self as as sophisticated as it is self-effacing you know um can you tell me about the day before you started writing this song is mm -hmm. a totally brilliant question that i'm going to steal um i think that you know it's difficult when you're talking with people about making art because it is a craft right you want the specific craft stuff and then there's also this ineffable part that is impossible to discuss yeah. and the show does an interesting thing because it runs up against that a lot so you know like there's a part where uh, in the alicia keys episode he asks the producer whose name i'm blanking on about his feeling about the beat that alicia keys came up with for the song because she wrote the, the the beat for it and he says oh i just thought is there anything she can't do that's not a particularly useful mm -hmm. <laughs> insight into the craft of songwriting. Right. But there's a lot of other amazing stuff in that episode. There's a real emotional journey into um, that song, which I don't think is that great a song, but th that's unlocked over the course of that episode that really actually deepens your understanding of how life experiences that might not be discussed in the song at all still wind up in that recording, still wind up in those words and that melody um, that I loved. And you also get little bits of, you know, wisdom about how they make the stuff like Alicia Keys saying, um, I don't like hi-hats. Actually, I find that hi-hats are restricting. And in fact, live drummers too, I'll ask them, don't play the hat. Make it like it's the smallest set you ever had. Or um, when they play this, the, the rhythm stem of Losing My Religion, you hear the hand claps, which no one in the band remembered being in the song. Wow. 
mean, I'm sure I remember it when it happened, but I don't remember that. <laughs> and then when they play the whole song together, you're like, yes, the hand claps actually are essential to why that song works. That's amazing. I mean, I, Isaac, totally agree with you that Alicia Keys' song is, to me, is just not an interesting song until they begin to... Um, uh, deconstruct and reconstruct, you know, it's, it's making, and then it becomes, I mean, it's just a, it's a measure of the genius of the show that the song, you can be completely indifferent to the song and even the artist. And over the course of it, I, it found it totally riveting. She's collaborating with a songwriter, but also, um, another guy, a jazz musician, songwriter and, and singer, Sampha, who's a very shy and melancholy collaborator to begin with. He's that sort of a person. He's just lost his mother, they're doing this in London. She, Alicia Keys, feels very far away from her very young kids. And they're, they have a lot of the song. They don't really have the lyrics. They don't have the emotional center of the song lyrically at all. And they're trying to hash that out. And they come up with, like, I will just say it, like, a, to me, a relatively banal verse or whatever. And then because he's helping hash out the melody, he's been singing it. And he's got some melodic ideas for it. And all of a sudden, they have this fucking eureka moment which is she's gonna sing the verse and then he's gonna sing the exact same words for the second verse Three and i'm heading nowhere i've got the time but now that you're not here i keep traveling by keep traveling by looking for love you got me looking for love. Oh, and all of a sudden, it's a song about her singing about missing her children, and he's singing to his recently deceased mother. And it's the exact same words. And the song is equal parts joy and grief. And this thing that's sort of cheeseball is suddenly transcendental, right? And it's like, that's amazing television. Yeah. Can I say what I don't like about yes, this? Yes, I was about to yeah. jump in with something, yeah, yeah. so you do it. Yeah, that would be good. I wonder if we all have the same thing. I mean, it's just what everything we're saying points towards sort of, you might say, the, the tastefulness or restraint of this show, right? That it's not um, asking leading questions or trying to get sensationalistic stories out of people, that Risha Case Hairway is very able to sit with people and, you know, let them talk their own way into what something meant to them. But then at the end of each episode, you hear the entirety of the song as you do on the podcast, right? You've sort of earned it by going through this long process of watching it be put together and hearing little bits of it in performance. You just hear the entire track. But when that happens on the podcast, it's this kind of pleasurable, relaxing moment, right? You just kick back and listen to the whole song that you've just been hearing. Personally, I would prefer hearing it up top. That's just my own nerdy, you know, reading all the museum text before I look at the painting mm -hmm. kind of style of cognition. I would rather hear the song and then hear it taken apart. But I do appreciate that on the Song Exploder podcast, you hear it taken apart and then you hear the whole song. But when that happens in the context of needing visuals as well, we get into these music videos. Videos. So every Song Exploder so far has ended with a sort of music video made by the show, you know, not the song's original video that appeared online wherever it would appear, but something that they've come up with. And I just find those videos really cheesy. The animation yeah. is embarrassing. The The way that the text flashes up on the screen, even the fonts chosen <laughs> for the song lyrics, it just feels like a bad karaoke track that you pulled up on YouTube and they make me uncomfortable. And I honestly usually just wander away and try to just listen and not look at the visuals being provided. Uh, Did you all find that too? To, to put it maybe slightly more gently, I think the show is struggling to find a visual vocabulary in general. Um, like the Lin-Manuel Miranda episode is is in, incredible, um, but there are a lot of like posed, staged, really awkward shots of him thoughtfully looking out a window or, and stuff <laughs> like that. And, you know, like, like I just don't think they've quite figured out how to keep it visually compelling um, while doing what the audio only version of the podcast did the, or does the podcast has existed for years. There's over 120 episodes. So it makes sense that like adapting that they would struggle a bit. Um, the next batch of episodes comes out pretty soon. And, uh, uh, I hope they start to play around with it a little bit and, and, and maybe discover a different way to tell these stories visually. Yeah, I mean, the image that you mentioned of, you know, Lin-Manuel looking out a window, every episode has some version of that. There's just a lot of visual padding. And some of that has to do, obviously, with the difficulty of 
translating an all audio format into one that contains images too. And part of it is just that documentary problem that you always, always see in made-for-TV documentaries or reality shows where it's sort of like, we have more information on the soundtrack than we have images to go with. So what filler are we going to find to make people look at while we tell them this information? And part of that, I think, could be addressed by the shows not all having to be half an hour long. And I know that that's part of, you know, that's just part of the, the hegemony of TV, that things have to be regulation lengths and they have to all be the same length. But something that's really nice about the Song Exploder podcast is they're wildly different lengths. There might be a 16-minute one because that's all that person had to say. You know, there might be a 25-minute one. And there's really a sense that they're tailored just to the length that they need to be. And so they're, they're not as, as padded with filler. All right, the show is a song exploder. I agree. By the way, he's the ideal, ideal host. He's he's amazing. Uh, it's on um, Netflix. Check it out and um, drop us an email. Love to hear what you think. All right, moving on. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. All right, now is the moment in our podcast when we endorse... Batman! <laughs> Uh, yes, it is. And I have a double. I have a Steve style double endorsement this week, one of which involves our guest this week, Isaac Butler. He didn't mention this because like Rishikesh Herway, he's a very humble man. But Isaac Butler has also recently had an, an interview with Alex Lacamoire, who was the music director for Hamilton and a longtime collaborator with Lin-Manuel, uh, who appears in long parts of that Song Exploder episode, but not on his own. He doesn't get, you know, sort of a one-on-one extended conversation about what his everyday job is like. And it's a very interesting job because, you know, he is essentially this sort of musical fairy on Lin-Manuel's shoulder, you know, helping him bring out the best in the songs that he's writing. He has all these different hats that he wears of arranging and being a music director. And, you know, he conducted the show underneath the stage in that hidden orchestra and in general just was almost like a a co-writer of the music. So, on the podcast Working, which Isaac co-hosts, he uh, he interviews Alex Lacamoire at quite great length, and it's of great interest. Alex Lacamoire is a hugely charming interviewee, and Isaac, as you're hearing on this show, is a very charming interviewer. So I recommend that um, that episode of Working and the Working podcast in general. If you don't have that on your podcast feed, I would assume that if you like this show, you would like Working. So give it a try. And my other endorsement that I had coming in even before this, I was not going to mention that, Isaac, if you had mentioned that you you interviewed Alex Lackamore, but you know, I thought it needed to be pointed out. Thank you. Yeah, no, it was a wonderful show. But the other cultural product that I experienced this week that I just thought was really exceptional has to do with the other podcast I do for Slate that I co-host with K. Austin Collins, the film critic for Rolling Stone. We do this show called Flashback that's a bi-weekly podcast about older and classic movies. And I hope listeners to this show have maybe explored it, although it is uh, behind the paywall. It's a Slate Plus only piece of content. Anyway, the last movie that we talked about, which I chose for election-related purposes, because it seemed like a, a great movie for the moment, was Ernst Lubitsch's To Be or Not To Be, which is this sort of oh, legendary yes. oh, comedy so starring yes. starring Jack Benny oh, and Carol Lombard. Y'all love that movie? Yes. Oh, my God. It's so... I mean, it's... it's it's Oh, it's so brilliant. I have... I, you just giggle with delight through the whole thing. Of course, Isaac, that's going to be a very you movie because it's a great movie about theater and about, you know, the experience of theatricality and how it sort of overlaps with with real life. And without giving too much away, I mean, it's a it's a movie about a theater troupe in Warsaw during Hitler's invasion of Poland. And it somehow manages to balance the comedy and the tragedy, the seriousness and the absurdity of that moment uh, in an absolutely brilliant and extremely Lubitschian way. Anyway, I'm endorsing the movie, of course, because it's a wonderful movie. But specifically, if you watch that movie on the Criterion channel, where it's streaming right now, I really, really recommend that afterwards you watch the entire commentary track that was recorded by this film historian named David Kalat, uh, who it just somehow strikes the perfect balance. Like, I love a commentary track that is both very informed and scholarly about the movie, but also not too droning and professorial. And it has, you know, has an engaging performance style in and of itself and is just someone that you would enjoy sitting through a class with. So David Collette's commentary is really just like taking a great, great 
film class about an absolutely brilliant and really historically significant uh, movie, To Be or Not To Be. So so that's it. Go on Criterion, watch To Be or Not To Be, especially in election week. You'll find it very germane and very entertaining. And listen, listen to David Collat talk about it, and you'll learn a lot. Uh, excellent. Uh, Isaac, what do you have? So I have two, uh, one that I have a personal connection to and one that I don't. A- about a year ago for the uh, the good people at Slate.com, which is a website you may have heard of, um, published this piece of mine about the um, sort of lost science fiction and fantasy author John M. Ford, who everyone called Mike, so I'm going to call him Mike. And I spent a couple years trying to track down Mike's work, what happened to Mike, how he died, and this sort of... Um, posthumous feud that had kept his work from coming back into print. Um, The reporting the article helped resolve that feud by putting the various players back in touch. And actually, uh, and so his work is now coming back into print. And the first one of his uh, books to be reissued just recently came out from Tor Essentials. It is totally brilliant. Uh, It is wonderful. It's a great romp. It's called The Dragon Waiting. And it is a kind of high fantasy alternate history retelling of the Wars of the Roses that takes place in a Europe where uh, the Byzantine Empire never fell and Christianity never took hold as the majority religion. Uh, There's also vampires and wizards and all sorts of other wonderful things. It is a great read. If you love Shakespeare, it's filled with tons of references to his Wars of the Roses plays. Um, It's called The Dragon Waiting. Uh, You know, there's people who've been waiting decades for it to come back into print, and now it finally is. And so please, please pick it up. It's a real, real treat. Um, the one I have no personal connection to is, uh, you know, the, the Danish television show Borgen, uh, which many, many people have loved and championed over the years, um, has been a little bit difficult to find and watch, but it is now on Netflix. And I believe Netflix is now producing a fourth season of it. Uh, it originates in 2010. It is about a woman, uh, sort of center left, Uh, woman who becomes Denmark's first female prime minister. Um, It is kind of the Danish West Wing, but if you're one of those people who has come to roll your eyes at at the West Wing, which I understand, there's something about uh, having a center-left TV show that takes place in someone else's country that is very, very pleasant to watch because you just don't have a lot of investment in the debates of it. You know, it's just like a fun political drama. Uh, And one of the lovely things about it is like how small the huge crises on it are if you're used to lurching through the crises of america um you know a crisis in borgen is like someone accidentally put a twelve thousand dollar jewelry store bill on their government credit card that's a scandal in that (laughs) show uh so Part of the pleasure of it is that smallness and that 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 decency, um, and it allows you to live out those fantasies without feeling like you're being naive because it's not about your country. So, uh, and the acting's great, and it's Denmark, so everyone's beautiful. So, um, Borgen, uh, it's on Netflix. I'm really enjoying it. All right, so I have to confess that having been such a basket case, preoccupied basket case this past week because of, I don't know why, maybe because civilization may go swirling down the friggin' toilet at 9 p.m. tonight, uh, I haven't been overly, like, you know, my cultural diet's been kind of verging on nil. But speaking of Michael Stipe, I just have amazing FOMO about, you know, like Athens when... REM and Pylon and these other bands were, you know, just playing the bars. And, um, uh, but of all of the people who came out of Athens, the one I love most is Vic Chestnut. We've talked about, you know, previously on the show. And uh, Michael Stipe produced his, I think, masterpiece, West of Rome. So I would definitely put people onto that. I've done it before, but that, that really is just a great record. I mean, he, if you don't know his music, he takes a little getting used to. But my wife, who's like so averse to, certain kind of male singer songwriter we went and saw he's dead now but we went and saw him um on a double bill with Kristen hirsch and they were just fucking amazing and and she's been a fan ever since i mean you can get past it and really see what his virtues are as a songwriter but anyway one place you might start is that he's got a song called flirted with you all my life which is an amazing song but the cowboy junkies do a cover of it that's just just great Self-aware And everywhere 
It's just a f- really great cover of a really amazing, really cutting, really sad, really hard song. And then the other thing I've been listening to this week is this, um, I was trying to put people onto this Christmas Eve busk that, you know, uh, various folkies and rock stars do in a major commercial intersection of Dublin every year. And it includes Bono, which may be a plus, maybe a minus. I'll leave that up to you. But other people who do really, really great, really moving things there. And uh, one of them uh, was a uh, Irish singer songwriter named Lisa Hannigan. I don't know if you guys know her music at all. I don't. Um, mm-hmm. I really dig it. I mean, she's done a tiny desk concert. She won't be hard to find. Uh, the song "A Sale," uh, two words, "A Sale," is. Um, I just think it's a lovely, lovely song. She's she's just an exquisite singer, and I'm starting to really understand the shape of her songwriting. It's long gone there, carry on from December. It is no matter if you remember. Isaac, man, it is always, always great to have you on the show. Thank you so much for coming on, filling in for JT. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, that was great. Dana, as always, a total pleasure. Yes, thank you, Stephen. I will roll my heart up in my sleep. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today at our show page. That's slate.com slash culturefest. Please email us. We, we love it. We really do at culturefest at slate.com. You can interact with us on Twitter. We have a feed. It's at Slate Cult Fest. Our producer is Cameron Drews. Our production assistant is Whitney Tessie. For Dana Stevens and Isaac Butler, I'm Stephen Metcalf. Thank you so much for joining us. We will see you soon. Mm-hmm.